John chapter 6, we begin reading in verse 41. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the Father, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Then Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at this. He said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up to where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. The Apostle John is demonstrating who Jesus is by recording his miracles and by recording his teachings. In this passage, we are seeing Jesus confirm who he is, the only begotten Son of God, the one who came from heaven in order to redeem us. And we are seeing this in a discourse between Jesus and his disciples. And now notice this. This is not Jesus versus the Pharisees. This is Jesus versus the disciples. And when we say that word disciples, understand we're not talking about the 12 disciples. 
We're talking about all the disciples. You had the 12 apostles, the inner circle, but you had at one time hundreds of people following Jesus from place to place to hear his teaching. They were all disciples. He was gaining a following. He was gaining a large following. And this is why the Pharisees didn't like him, because he had more fans than they did. He had more likes on Facebook than they did, <laughs> so on and so forth. But when Jesus gets into this discussion with his disciples, we find that many of them walk away. The context of this passage is that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, and it's nearly time for the Passover. Uh, verse 4 in chapter 6 here tells us that the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. It means Passover is about to happen. We stand before here, we sit here today, and Thanksgiving is nigh. It's upon us. Christmas is nigh. It's upon us. If you don't believe me, go to Hobby Lobby. They've got the Christmas trees up. And I think some of them are probably on sale by now. I haven't been in there in a few weeks, but I'm pretty sure if I go in there, there's going to be Christmas stuff on sale because that's just how Hobby Lobby works, okay? Christmas is upon us. In this passage, the Passover is upon them. And during the time of the Passover, the people were typically on high alert looking for the coming of Messiah, looking for the coming of Elijah, looking for the return of the Lord to them. And so when Jesus performed the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, it got their attention. Because there's supposed to be a prophet that's supposed to rise, like Moses, that's supposed to rise up. We studied that passage in Deuteronomy this morning. That's why we studied the Old Testament. We see the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New Testament. There's supposed to be a prophet like unto Moses that will rise up. And Moses fed their forefathers in the wilderness with a manna. Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. Ha ha! This must be him. But the problem was that they were rejecting the Lord's eternal salvation in favor of temporary earthly provision. They were worried about running the Romans off. Today we're worried about getting the right party elected. We're worried about who owns Twitter. We're worried about do our kids get into the right colleges. Did our football team win? I love, no, I don't love football anymore. I still like it, though. But I, I enjoy talking football. I enjoy trying to figure out if Tom Brady's going to play till he's able to collect Social Security or not. Okay, I enjoy these conversations. But to be preoccupied with it, to, 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 that's your sole purpose in life, is to see the Cowboys win another Super Bowl, to get your kids across that graduation stage where they receive that degree, to get the house paid off, to, to get that promotion at work, when that becomes what consumes you, you miss the bigger picture. The people were looking for a great leader to run off the Romans, to reestablish the kingdom of Israel to themselves, not to the Lord, not to God, but to themselves. They were looking to have their financial future solidified so that they wouldn't have to worry about food anymore. And so when they come to Jesus after being fed, they are looking for temporary earthly blessings. This place, the life that we live right now is temporary. It's temporary. This place is a temporary home pending our relocation to heaven. And what we are going through, the needs that we face, the problems we have, and the blessings and the happiness and the wealth and the toys that we have, they're all temporary. But as we go deeper into this passage... The context of this passage becomes even more important 
as our Lord uses the things consumed during Passover to illustrate who he is and how we should receive him. Jesus says in this passage that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood would have eternal life. That's kind of macabre sounding, is it not? But if you miss the metaphor of the pending Passover, you miss the metaphor that Jesus is giving us, and you get really confused in this passage really quickly. So much to the point that some religions believe that the elements of communion, the Lord's Supper, literally turn into the flesh and blood of Christ once it's received into your mouth. Blech. But it doesn't taste like it, thus that's the double miracle. But scripture here does not speak to a double miracle. Jesus does not mention a double miracle because Jesus is not literally talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He is not going cannibalistic. Jesus is not psychotic. The idea, this idea is not only ridiculous, but it completely ignores the metaphor that Christ has given. Jesus says in verse 63, he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. That word quickeneth means to give life. All right. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. The words that I speak unto you, that's why I slowed down there. They are spirit. They are life. Jesus is telling us he's not talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's giving us a metaphor. We're at Passover. What do you have at Passover? You have the unleavened bread. You have the wine. You have the sacrifice of the lamb and the, and the eating of the sacrificial lamb that is, that is, uh, that is offered. And, and all of this was a metaphor. All of this was a metaphor for what Jesus would one day do. The, the Israelites in Egypt observed that first Passover. That Passover was a metaphor for salvation in Christ. That's why the apostle, the apostle, that's why John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take the sin of, which taketh away the sin of the world. That Lamb, Jesus is basically saying here, I'm the Lamb. I'm the unleavened bread. I'm the wine. When he institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is, he hands them the unleavened bread. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. He, he hands them the wine. He says, this is the New Testament in my blood. It wasn't his blood, it was wine. But it's a metaphor, you see. And that's what Jesus has given us. And so we're supposed to learn from this. We're supposed to learn how deep our faith and trust in the Lord needs to be. We are supposed to learn how consumed with the Lord we should be, how focused on the Lord that we should be. We should not be preoccupied with whether or not Tennessee totally blew their one chance at a national title, and as long as I've been an adult, we should be preoccupied. You can enjoy the game, but we should be preoccupied with Christ. In this passage, our Lord is warning the people that they are being given an opportunity to receive him and to inherit eternal life. He tells them that the Father is drawing them near. That the Father is drawing them. He tells them if they believe, they will be saved and they will inherit eternal life. But at the end of the passage, we find Jesus and his 12 disciples. And if there's anything I can relate to in the life of Jesus, it's having everybody leave and to have 12 people. I'm not going to sit there and say, y'all are my disciples. I'm not going to say that. But the, his, the history of my ministry has been in churches of about 13 people, including myself. 
And I told Jessica, I said, you know, I think I, think I must be incapable of pastoring more because 13 is all that God gives me. And Jessica pointed to this passage because, well, it's what Jesus had. So uh, why are you special? Good point. Um, but even with those 12 that were there with Jesus, they're still here. They're still committed. They're still keeping the faith. But Jesus says, I've chosen out of you 12. One of you is a devil. Just being in that group of 12, just being in that inner circle, your presence is not enough. You have to have the faith and the obedience to go with it. So let's talk about the Father drawing all men near. And let's, let's be clear, this is not a gender thing. That's all people here, okay? Verse 44. Our Calvinist friends love this one. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Man in his natural state does not, will not, and does not desire to seek God. Man does not look to God unless God is getting his attention. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. No one looks after God, looks for God, seeks God's will of their own accord. God has to get their attention. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, the apostle John writes, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God who draws people to him. It is God who gets our attention. It is God who convicts us of sin. It is God who makes known unto us the way of salvation. It is God who does it. Not us. Wasn't our idea. Mankind did not reach out to God and seek reconciliation to God. Rather, it was God who reached out to mankind to seek reconciliation with men. And so God draws people to salvation. He draws people to repentance. He draws people to himself. No man comes to the Father except the Father draw him. That's, that's a spiritual truth. It's not a religious belief. It's not a doctrine. It's just the way things operate. It's the way we operate. You say, well, then what if God doesn't draw him? But God draws everybody. God draws everybody. Verse 45. Jesus says it is written in the prophets. And they shall be all taught by God. God leaves no one out. He draws all people to himself. In John chapter 12 verse 32. Jesus said and if I be lifted up from the earth. That being he's, if he be crucified. If I being lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. Jesus was about to pay the ultimate price for the salvation of the world. Do you think he's going to shortchange himself by not drawing everybody to him? And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but notice when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. When they knew God, they were not thankful. When they knew God, they became vain in their imaginations. When they knew God, their foolish heart was darkened. What does that mean? It means that everybody has the moment that God draws. 
That means that everyone has a moment where God gets your attention, where you come to the realization that there is creator God, that God does exist, that he is who he is, and that he's drawing you to him. And you have a decision to make at that point. Do I follow God or do I turn back to my own way? And people say, what about the Bushmen? What about the people who existed before Christ? People who lived in places where there never was a Christian missionary. They still had the moment where God drew them. And if they responded, God would provide the way of salvation to them. Why do you think the Israelites hung out in the wilderness for 40 years? That's kind of extreme. They freak out before they go into the promised land. God chastises them for their lack of faith keeps them out of the promised land for 40 years, and when he leads them into the promised land, he leads them right up to the most fortified city that the promised land had. Why? Because in that fortified city of Jericho, there's a woman named Red who sees who God is. She's having this moment. God draws her to him. She sees it, and she says, that's who I want to worship. That's who I want mercy from. And she was saved became an ancestor to Christ. Every person has that moment that God draws them, and they either choose to follow or they choose to reject. Those who choose to follow will be saved. Verse 45 goes on to say, Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Every man that hath heard, to hear means to listen attentively to, and every man that hath learned that means he has learned and applied what he has heard. The natural outgrowth of that is to come to Jesus. When you realize what God is telling you, you will come to Jesus. When you accept what God is teaching you about your sin and your need for redemption, you will come to Jesus. What Jesus is telling the people is that they are being given a golden opportunity. God had set this moment up for them so that they could know without a doubt who their Savior is. This is a statement that will be repeated when the Passion Week begins, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey colt, and he tells Jerusalem, if you had known this to be your hour, this is your opportunity. Yet in their foolish fascination with the here and now, and with their foolish pride, they rejected him and walked away. Today, God has drawn you into his presence. I know that because you're here. Amen. You're here. He has drawn you into his presence. And you are hearing his gospel preached. Now, whether you're hearing it preached well, that can be up for debate. But you are hearing his gospel preached. The question is, will you go to Jesus? Will you follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or will you decide that this is too hard to hear, too hard to pay attention to, too hard to prioritize, and walk away? There are so many excuses for not going to church on Sunday. It's too early on Sunday morning. But you know what? We can make the case that worship could happen anytime between sundown on Friday and sunup on Monday. And it doesn't matter what time we set worship, there will be an excuse not to show up. If we do worship on Friday nights after sundown like the Jewish synagogues do today, it's football Friday. I can't go. We have a game. If we do Saturday morning like the Seventh-day Adventists do, I'm too tired from the football game the night before. If we do Saturday evening like some congregations do, 
it's right in the middle of my weekend. I wanted to take a, I wanted to take a trip. If we do Saturday, if we do Sunday morning, we already know it's too early. Sunday night, we're too worn out from the weekend we just had. There's an excuse. There's an excuse. People say it's about relationship, not the religion, and I agree, but I still like the religion. People say you don't have to be in the church to be a part of the church. Well, I don't have to be in uniform to be a part of the Dallas Cowboys, but it's a lot more fulfilling to be in uniform and to be at the, at the stadium on game day. You see what I'm saying? We make all these excuses to disconnect ourselves from what we see as, as religion and as we see what we see as, as the church and we want to do things on our own, but that's not how God told us to do it. What about the judgmentalness of the church? I'll address that in another message. I've got one that, that's brewing. You want to talk about judgmentalism? I've experienced it in the worst ways. Not from y'all individually. And you may even say probably not even from this church, but over the course of my life and my walk in this life and my beginning my walk of faith, I came across some pretty wretched things, pretty wretched ways people treated me, but I'm still here. And I find myself from time to time ministering to the very people that hurt me. Jesus was completely rejected by man. He was crucified, yet he continually ministers to us. If we're going to be Christ-like and follow his example, judgmental Christians in the church, they're there. I'm not denying it. They're not our excuse. We're following Jesus, not them. Those who believe will be saved. In verse 47, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And isn't it a blessing to hear those words? He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Not going to get everlasting life. May not inherit everlasting life one day. No, he says, He that believeth on me hath. That's King James for has. Has everlasting life. You trust in Jesus to receive you into heaven based on the work that he did on the cross. You have this deep-rooted trust. I know I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. I know I'm going to heaven because I'm forgiven. I know that I'm going to heaven because he paid for my sins and he forgave my sins and he covered my sins. Sometimes I'm sitting at home and I think about something stupid I did back when I was 19 years old, when I was 20, when I was 21. I think back to when I was a member of the youth group growing up and that poor youth director, he had a headache with me. I didn't realize I was being a headache, but looking back on it now, I was a pretty big headache. But yet he ministered to me out of love. How do I even deserve to draw a breath having acted that way? But I know that Jesus forgave me. Amen. That Jesus has redeemed me. Yes. And I know that because of what he did on the cross, not because of anything I've done. Because I know that in me dwells no good thing. I know that left to my default, left to myself, my tendency is to go toward things that are ungodly. But the Lord keeps me corrected. And the Lord continually works in my life to transform me. That's God's grace, and that's his love right there. I'm going to heaven not because I was a good preacher, not because I was a preacher, not because I raised a family, not because I went to work every day, not because I voted Republican, not because I voted Democrat, not because I gave this charity. I'm going to heaven because I know that I've got God's forgiveness and his grace. And I trust that. And God says, why should I let you into heaven? All I can say is, Lord, I didn't give you much to work with. But I know that your son paid the way. Amen. Verses 48 through 50, Jesus goes on to say, I am that bread of life. 
Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Jesus is now pivoting to the imagery of the Passover and the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. The unleavened bread of the Passover. That's Jesus. It represents Christ. He goes into this when he institutes the Lord's Supper using the same elements of the Passover. You remove the painting of the blood over the doorpost and you remove the sacrificial lamb and you've got the Lord's Supper. Unleavened bread and then the fruit of the vine. And that's what you got. And Jesus institutes this and he says, this is my body. And notice it's without leaven. Why is that? Because leaven symbolizes sin. The body of Christ, the bread, having no leaven, shows us that Jesus Christ was without sin. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Yet he went to the cross to pay for our sins. Him having no sin in himself took the wrath of God and the punishment of God upon himself for those of us who are full of sin. If Jesus is the unleavened bread, we are yeast rolls. And yeast rolls are delicious. I'm going to have some at Thanksgiving. But let me tell you something. Yeast rolls will not fill you up. You may get to where you can't eat anymore, but you're not getting any nutrition out of that. It's not good for you. If you've got blood sugar issues, it's really bad for you. But the unleavened bread has none of that yeast in it. It's pure. No leaven shows that Jesus was sinless. The bread is broken and consumed by the worshipers. This demonstrates, this demonstrates the suffering of Christ, and it demonstrates how he is there for all. The body of Christ was broken for us, and that through our faith we receive the eternal salvation that the sufferings of Christ purchased. That's the picture that, we, that they were supposed to take from Passover. That's the picture that we're supposed to see and take from the Lord's Supper. The manna in the wilderness was not that bread. Jesus said, your fathers ate that bread, but they're in the ground now. The manna in the wilderness sustained their temporary earthly lives but the manna in the wilderness did not sustain their eternal lives. Jesus said in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The bread that I give is my flesh. Jesus is not going cannibalistic. He's talking about himself on the cross. He says, the bread that I give is my flesh. The bread that I give is my flesh being nailed to the cross. The bread that Jesus Christ gave was his body being beaten, being tortured, enduring the wrath of man, and enduring the wrath of God over the wrath of man, enduring all of that, suffering completely as much as anyone could possibly suffer in his body. He was offering his flesh to the world to be crucified, to be treated as shamely as man could devise in his heart to treat him in order to take God's wrath upon himself so that we could walk free from it. Amen. The bread that he gives was his flesh, not food. Mm -hmm. That comes up a little bit later when we dismiss from here at noon. The bread that he gives is his body being offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. This is the concept that people were struggling with because the people didn't think that Jesus was talking about cannibalism. They didn't think he was going psychotic. They were probably trying to figure out what he was talking about. And when he's talking about giving his flesh, when he's talking about giving himself over, when he's talking about sacrificing himself on the cross for the sins of the world, they were having trouble with that concept because they weren't looking for that. 
What they wanted was an earthly king who would fix everything politically in their culture. Being earthly minded, they had little regard for eternal salvation. They had little regard for the cross. Their main concern was mealtime. Their main concern was prestige. Their main concern was the things of this earth. Jesus told his 12 apostles, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed and handed over to the Romans and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, be it far from you, Lord. This will not come to pass. I'm not going to let anybody touch you, Lord. And Peter meant it. He took up arms against the army. This guy was hardcore. But what did Jesus say to him? When Jesus said, be it far from you, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. He's telling Peter, he's telling his disciples, this earthly life is not what it's about. It's about the eternal life. And to get to the eternal life, Jesus was going to have to go to the cross. This is what the people are boggled by. This is what the people were saying was a hard saying. Who can hear it? And it's still a hard concept to grasp, mainly because of people's sinfulness. We tend to think of ourselves as good. We tend to think of ourselves as basically good people. So to be told that our sins were paid for on the cross is offensive to us because we don't think we have any real sin. Or if it's not offensive to us, it becomes a nice story. We can put it in stained glass windows and mask the suffering that Jesus really went through and say, that's a nice story, I believe it, therefore I'm going to heaven. But we don't ever consider our own sin. We don't reconcile to God over our sin. We just accept the story. We tend to think of ourselves as having overcome sin and having grown into a certain righteousness. We're better than those sinners out there. And people want, pre- I see people on Facebook, preachers never preach against sin anymore. They, and they want us to preach against sin, but they only want us to preach against sin that's going on out there. They don't want us preaching on sin that's going on in here, that's going on there. I once had a group of men at a church I pastored pull me aside and say, Pastor, you never preach on homosexuality. It was a small group of about 12 people. I said, gentlemen, I didn't realize y'all were having the struggle. But if you are, we'll address what Scripture has to say about it. That ended that that conversation pretty quickly. No, people don't want to hear about their own sin because they're basically good people. We need to talk about those sinners out there. The real sinners. So when the message centers around the gospel and our continual need for God's grace, we tend to find that offensive. And when the message centers on God's grace upon those horrible sinners that we think are going to bust hell wide open, that tends to offend us too. Is God going soft? People have this idea that every good thing coming to me is because I did good and therefore God's rewarding me. I did good, therefore I'm blessed. Because I was good. And this idea that we should have compassion on those that are without and those who are still in sin, it's a hard saying. Because I'm good and God's blessing me. But that's not how it works. The idea of good being an eternal thing and not an earthly thing means that even when horrible things are happening to us in this life, we have to trust that God's working it to our eternal good. 
that the good that God intends for us sometimes will not be realized until we enter into his kingdom. But guess what? That's the better good. I'd rather have the, I'd rather have the mansion there than here. Because the mansion here is going to crumble and I'm going to lose it when I pass from this earth. But people don't want good in eternity. They want the good now. They want to live the best life now. So the gospel becomes a hard saying. Who can hear it? I was reading Romans 8.28 with a lady recently. And her husband was dying. And I said, some will tell you that this verse means Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work to good of those who love God, who are thee called according to his purpose. I said, some people say that this means if I lose my job, I've got a better one lined up. And I looked at her and said, you and I have been around the block enough times, we know that that doesn't always work out. But we know the verse is true. God's not a liar. So what's good is for our eternal good. And I said, so sometimes that means that we have to endure our worst nightmares in this earth now, which she was doing. But we know that the good that God's working it is not only his receiving your husband into his presence, but also that through this time that you're having with him, that he's working a, tran a transformation in your heart. He's working something bigger in your life. And in those whose lives your husband touched, and there's going to be good that's going to come out of this. You may not see it in this life, but you will in the next. But that's a hard saying for people who can hear it. You say, Leland... You're preaching to the choir. Wish we had a choir. I also like pipe organs, but I'm the only one. Um, but you being here in the choir, you being the 12, wow, literally. Wow, okay, cool. You being the 12 is not going to be enough to get you into heaven. In verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And they all leave. And they left, not because they were confused, because Jesus would have cleared that confusion up, but they, were, they left because they were more interested in having a, an earthly king and a champion on earth than they were having eternal salvation. They rejected the truth to follow their own desires. Or as John said in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. If people want the truth, they'll stay. If they want entertainment, if they want a weekly dose of you're good and okay, if they want a weekly dose of you got a better job coming up around the corner, if they want a sales net networking opportunity, I need to sell insurance, so i got to go to a place where there's lots of people who want to buy insurance, they're going to go elsewhere. But if they want the truth, they'll stay. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, verses 67 through 69, Will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus asked the apostles there in 10, he goes, are you leaving? And Peter says, we're here. We believe you. You have the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure and are convinced and have settled in our hearts that you are the Christ, the Son of the, of the living God. And Peter's declaration of faith is good, but without that faith, their presence would be meaningless. As Jesus responds, he says, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil, speaking of Judas Iscariot. You got the twelve, they're the few and faithful, but Judas is there. Judas heard the same words that the other eleven heard. Judas was, saw the same miracles. Judas had the same opportunity. God drew him. 
the Lord reached out to him. But Judas was opposed to Christ. Now he may have been self-deceiving into thinking he was for Christ, but ultimately he was the enemy of Christ. He was an opponent. He went on to betray the Lord and to incur the wrath of God upon himself. You see, mere presence does not equal faith. Presence does not bring salvation. Going to church does not make you any more of a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. But if you believe, you're going to be here. Mere presence does not equal faith, and presence does not equal salvation. You must trust the Lord and truly believe. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word ashamed means to be let down. It doesn't mean to be embarrassed. It means to be let down. All your coworkers drive these brand new Yukons and $50,000 SUVs and you roll up in an 05 Ford Focus. You feel like my car is not as good as everybody else's. It makes a rattling noise when you drive. And some days you miss that old car. Everybody else has got a big house. I'm living in a trailer. That's ashamed. Or you feel like you got the short end of the stick in life. That's, that, that's what ashamed means. The Apostle Paul said that he did not feel like he got the short end of the stick with the gospel. That he did not feel like somehow all of his education was lost, all of his brilliance was lost, that he had to wind up sacrificing the goodness and, and the wealth of his life in order to serve the Lord. He didn't feel like he got the short end of the stick. For Paul, it was all about that gospel. It was the power of God and the salvation. The gospel was what was going to bring in everything that Paul dreamed of, which was the eternal kingdom of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We should not feel let down. We should not feel that the gospel is somehow the introductory level of Christianity and we have to move beyond it to level two. Now the gospel is level two and it's level three and it's level four. I don't know how many levels there are here, but the gospel is every one of them. When we set aside the gospel, we've exited the program altogether. We stand here, we sit here, we gather here and the reason we gather here is because we have all been redeemed through the price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross. And most of you have made that profession to me. But if you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, I've been living a lie. I thought I was a Christian, but I've never actually considered what Jesus did on the cross. I've never actually placed my faith in what he did and not on my acceptance or well, belief accesses the salvation of the gospel but a lot of people tend to tend to place their faith in the prayer they said or the baptism they went through or the church they attended and i've been looking to myself for this salvation all these years i've never actually placed my faith completely in the lord and i need to make that decision today that's what this invitation is about if you want to make that decision public you can do so come forward as we sing the first and last verses of amazing grace or if you'd rather talk to me after church or sometime this week we can do that, but here's the thing. You don't have to come down. You don't have to talk to me. You make that decision in your heart that you are fully trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross to clear you of your sin debt, and your salvation begins at that moment. Let's stand.